Welcome to this edition of the Perspectives in Information podcast, a series brought to you by the CSF. It shines a spotlight onto experts in the field of information and their research interests. My name is Paul Emery from the University of Leeds, UK, and joining me today is my good friend, Professor Michael Weinblatt for the Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard University in the US. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Paul. Michael, you've been at the Brigham for 40 years. Can you tell me a little bit about the institution and the clinical research programs you have there? So uh, our division evolved from the Robert Brigham Hospital, which was the first arthritis hospital in the United States, which was founded uh, in 1914. Uh, That was a 96-bed hospital for orthopedics and rheumatology. And then in 1980, we merged with the Peter Bent Brigham to form the Brigham Women's Hospital. Uh, We have a huge rheumatology division uh, with over 60 rheumatologists. We have a very large basic research group with a variety of interests. Our initial chair was Kate Frank Austin, one of the world's experts in inflammation, followed by Mike Brenner. And our current chief now is Ellen Gravelisi. We also have a very large clinical research program directed by Dan Solomon and Karen Kostenbader, primarily interested in health outcomes and epidemiology, a variety of diseases. And I've directed a clinical therapeutic unit and now oversee a large patient registry called BRASS. So it's been a phenomenal place. We have a huge clinical faculty. Uh, we see over 40,000 outpatients a year. We have over 4,500 patients with rheumatoid arthritis that we manage. So how did you get into rheumatology in the first place? You were a resident, I think, down in Maryland. Is that right? Yeah. So um, like, like many of us, it was mentoring. I had two remarkable mentors in Baltimore. Gene Jackson, who was chief of rheumatology in Maryland. And then I spent quite a bit of time at Johns Hopkins uh, with Mary Betty Stevens, who was the chief of the program, who was really a remarkable clinical investigator and clinician. And they were my two early mentors. And then I went to Boston for my fellowship, where I had the privilege of working with Kay Frank Austin and Ron Anderson, a superb clinician, uh, who really taught me the purpose of seeing patients and what we're supposed to be doing and the value of good clinical research. Well, I think we share the same uh, opinion that the best questions come from seeing clinical issues and, uh, and actually directing your research to where they're needed. Um, you were there in the pre-biologics era, obviously, and uh, there, was a large number, there were a large number of patients to be treated what were your approaches in those days? Well, I think just like what you did in the UK, we used the, quote, slow-acting anti-rheumatic therapy, which in retrospect was ridiculous. Um, you know, gold salts were a major part of our therapy. At the Robert Brigham, our patients were admitted to the hospital for two to four weeks where they were put in Hubbard tanks and given hot wax therapy and injected their joints, and we start them on gold treatment and and low-dose steroids. And they did well in the short term. And then um, we uh, sent them home, and then they came back three months later to, um, to start another realm. And it was very disappointing in patients in wheelchairs, as you mentioned, ambulances. I mean, the reason our patients stayed functional back then 
was because of the skill of the orthopedic surgeons. We had a combined unit with orthopedics, so we all met every day. Um, we had really skilled surgeons led by Clem Sledge, and that led our patients to be functional. But clearly, you know, from 1978 to 1980, when I trained, we were really stalled as far as new therapies for the treatment of this disease. Well, Michael, the story of methotrexate is an incredible one. And I'm sure everyone would like to hear your take on it. You were right there in the middle of it all. So yeah, give us a little bit about that. So it's not like we discovered a new drug. Methotrexate had been around since its parent compound since 1948, aminopterin in the treatment of childhood leukemia. And the observation that uh, antifolates could work in rheumatoid arthritis were made in 1950, but the observation was lost by the rheumatology community. I think great credit needs to go to Rex Hoffmeister, a practicing rheumatologist in Spokane, Washington, who reported in 1972 his personal use of methotrexate and success, but he never published it because he had incredible criticism about using a cancer drug to treat RA. I had used methotrexate early in my career when I was at Wake Forest University, and it had been used by dermatologists for decades. And I wrote a, a clinical protocol. In fact, it was the first clinical therapeutic study I'd ever done. I wrote a protocol and I sent it to Letterly Laboratories. And they initially wrote back that they weren't interested. And several months later, they invited me to a meeting where John Ward, one of the real giants of clinical therapeutics, was in attendance. And Joel Kremer, a young rheumatologist from Albany who was interested in studying methotrexate, and the medical director at the time, Harriet Kilty, a Scottish lady, fantastic, said, I'm interested in methotrexate and I'm going to fund your studies. Joel was interested in looking at the impact of methotrexate on the liver. And I was interested to find out whether methotrexate worked by designing a placebo-controlled trial. The remarkable thing is that literally, uh, particularly Dr. Kilty, had the vision not just to support our initial randomized trial, but when it was published, then to allow us to follow these patients long term. And then she gave me the opportunity to design a number of trials comparing methotrexate to other drugs. So we took an old drug and repurposed it for rheumatoid arthritis. And um, I think it, as most people do, is beginning of the new therapies for this disease. Do you remember, Michael, we had a meeting where um, sulfasalazine was promoted as European methotrexate. That's right. And that might be one of the first meetings where I met you, Paul. Um, yeah. It, it didn't hurt that it was in Italy, um, and uh, we had Hilary Capel, uh, the queen of sulfasalazine, um, and yourself. Four a day, yes. And, and we sat around and talked about drug development and where we should be going. And, you know, if you look back over 30 years, there have been, you know, some seminal points in the development of treatment for the disease, methotrexate being one, and obviously the development of biologics, particularly anti-TNF therapies, um, really changed this disease. Yeah, Mike, before we get on to biologics, can I ask you about combination therapy? You were always quite keen on that, and uh, I know many people were not, because um, myself included, was very, very skeptical that you could combine, as you say, a potential cytotoxic agent with other agents without increasing toxicity. But you were, you were always assured that that was worth doing. And I wonder what was the basis of that? Well, partly because as good as methotrexate was, 
we still had a substantial number of patients that still had active disease. And the question is then, if we started combining drugs without a lot of scientific rationale, Paul, I mean, I'd be the first to tell you that there was not a lot of science in what we tried to do. We took a, available drugs that we were using in RA that we were comfortable with and started combining them together. And some of the combinations worked and a lot of them didn't. But we, we developed at least expertise on how to approach the question, realizing that if methotrexate was the anchor drug, we would leverage drugs on top of it and then see what happens. And I think all of us would agree today that almost all of the drugs we use work better with methotrexate than as monotherapy. Yeah, we, we got very good at rehearsing the argument that the side effects of the disease were worse than the side effects of the drugs. We were doing so badly, it gave us actually a lot of leeway in, in, in experimentation. Uh, but the next big change, again, with you central to it, was the introduction of biologics. Um, how did you see that developing? Well, it's interesting. I mentioned earlier that uh, when I talked to you about our first foray into that was well, looking at interferon gamma, which is one of the first biologics that were looked at. You know, the early history of biologics was not pretty. I mean, we all think that, you know, we just jumped into anti-TNF therapy, a lot of it because of the work coming out of the UK with Tiny Maney and, I mean, with, with uh, Tiny Maney and Mark Feldman at the Kennedy. But the 10 years before that, was a rough 10 years. Both Paul, both you and I, and led by Gabriel Panay, did a lot of work looking at depleting the T cell, um, any CD4 therapy, CD5 immunotoxin. Uh, I worked with John Isaacs and others on CAMPATH1H, which uh, uh, was a challenging experience. And all of these biologics ended up in the open studies being positive, but in randomized trials, being no better than the placebo with potentially a lot of side effects. And it wasn't until directed cytokine therapy uh, moved forward that we got to the drugs that we have today. What a lot of the listeners may not know about is that there were two parallel tracks moving forward with cytokine inhibition. One was directed against interleukin-1 and one was directed against anti-TNF therapy. Both drugs or both concepts were actually being studied in other diseases primarily septic shock. So with IL-1 inhibition, sepsis was the big draw, but they failed. With anti-TNF therapy, sepsis was the initial draw and they failed. So drug was available and investigators then began to explore their use in rheumatoid arthritis. And obviously anti-TNF therapy was the winner because even though IL-1 blockade looked great in the animal models, it certainly did not achieve the efficacy that we had hoped. Yes, that was, I suppose, the the, the turning point was uh, the evidence, perhaps from the ATTRACT study, that uh, showed that halting of uh, radiographic regression was almost universal, to, as you say, totally against the, the animal models where we felt that IL-1 was going to be the yeah. main mediator of bone disease. But the, um, you were involved with one of the earliest publications with the Tanaset. Were you predicting what you found, or were you surprised well, by it? So our first work was with, 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 was with Lenercept, the P55 soluble receptor. I, had the, I was approached by both Roche and Immunex to look at their molecules. I'd been consulting to their companies, and I elected to do my first trial with Lenercept because I thought it looked like a better molecule, and I thought Roche 
had a better concept on how to do drug development because Immunex was a, obviously an unknown company with limited research experience in that area. As it ended up, because of manufacturing issues, Lenercept became a non-player. Huge amount of blocking antibodies against Lenercept due to change in glycosylation of the molecule. And then I moved forward working with a Tenercept, both in the phase three program, but my major interest was combining a um, which I had proposed to Immunex uh, years before. And as it was, we did the first combination trial with a Tenercept and methotrexate. It was designed as a safety study, but the results were so robust that the FDA accepted it for labeling purposes to label a Tenercept with methotrexate. And, you know, when we did the trial, we had, a, quote, blinded clinical observers. Um, but you, you could be blindfolded um, and still be blind and be unblinded because the patients who are getting it felt so much better than the patients getting placebo. You'd walk in the room and see the study patients, half of them smiling and half of them miserable. So um, you found out pretty quickly what they were on. Yeah, the, you mentioned that you think methotrexate works with most other anti-rheumatic drugs. Uh, the mechanism of that action uh, with the monoclonals, especially the chimeric, it's obvious that reducing antibodies is one and there's the pharmacodynamic uh, effect as well. How do you think, it, why is it working well with a fusion protein like Tanacept, do you think, right? I have no idea. And that's, you know, still an important story. As you mentioned, uh, methotrexate increases the concentration of the, of the monoclonal antibodies by 20 to 25%. So it's a cost-effective way to treat the disease rather than increase the dose of the monoclonal. Put the patient in the background methotrexate. By increasing the concentration, you basically can reduce antibody production. A Tenercept, methotrexate does not increase the drug levels of the Tenercept. And Tenercept has a very low level of antibodies. So why it works? We don't know. It's very clear that methotrexate added to anti-TNF has increased the efficacy of those compounds. But there are other drugs. Methotrexate increases the efficacy of Avacet. It increases numerically the efficacy of the anti-IL-6s. And even with the JAK inhibitors, there's a numeric improvement with methotrexate as compared to the JAK itself. It's not statistical. So still... A lot to learn, I suppose, in that area. But, but as you say, uh, we the the I suppose the we are particularly concerned. The way we we always start everyone with methotrexate, unless it's toxicity. But we we get less concerned about withdrawing it after a few years. Do you have the same approach? Yeah. So number one, I think after I don't know thirty some years of methotrexate approved in nineteen eighty eight. We know everything bad about the molecule. It's actually, most patients do pretty well with it. Tolerability has always been the problem. Nausea, the big reasons why patients stop the drug. You know, respiratory infection rates are pretty low. Hepatotoxicity is pretty low if you monitor patients. My goal is to, most patients want to get on a lower dose of methotrexate because they just don't like taking it. So, what I try to do is, as we've pu published previously to you, is I put patients in clinical remission. And then once they've been at that level for a while, then try to back down from the methotrexate dose. And I tend to go very slowly. 
I lower by two and a half milligrams a month because it takes that long for the disease to return. If they're on a monoclonal antibody, I tend to keep them on a dose of methotrexate, generally 10 milligrams a week, so I can reduce the development of antibody production. Then on the back end, if they're doing great with a lower dose of methotrexate and a biologic, I then try to stop the interval of toxicity for biologic, which is a cost-effective way to treat the disease. I don't think most patients can tolerate stretching out the dose of biologic without being on a dose of methotrexate because of antibody reduction. Yeah, well, we, I totally agree. We actually have an even longer uh, gap between reducing methotrexate dose, usually three months, actually, um, yeah. to get through the half-life of uh, lymphocytes. Mike, you've been involved with um, small molecules for a long time. And, of course, small molecules are suddenly uh, very much part of our armamentarium. Um, what we, did you think they would become uh, safe enough to use in a widespread fashion? Or were you a believer in that they would just be salvage therapy for, for rheumatoid patients? Well, I, I wasn't sure about... Um, we worked with the P38 MAP kinases. That was going to be the great oral treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. And unfortunately, most of them didn't work. Um, we couldn't get a dose up. Um, because of side effects, and when we didn't agree of efficacy, they worked for a couple of weeks, and then they had this rebound effect where the CRP went up and the disease flared. So the P38s didn't turn out well. Uh, we then started work on JAK inhibitors and obviously and other pathways. I was initially concerned about the JAKs from a safety standpoint, primarily because of some of the early work at very high doses in renal transplant, in which there were a lot of infections, uh, particularly viral disease and cases of uh, Epstein-Barr lymphoproliferative disease. But I think we found that as the dose titrated down, a lot of the serious side effects, particularly infections, were reduced. Um, and you know, looking back 10 years after these drugs were launched, remarkable with lower doses how we've been able to achieve significant efficacy with much fewer infections. Um, so I'm pretty bullish now about where I think the japanims are going to go. I think you mentioned in your podcast the issue of, you know, VTEs, which came up kind of out of the blue. Uh, we weren't suspecting that this would be a problem. It was identified first in the Barrett program, um, and it was also now been reported in the cardiovascular outcome study with, with tofacitamide, but we're not seeing so far today with two other drugs that are approved, apatacitamide and phlegotamide. And I'm not sure yet what the mechanism behind that is and, and ultimately what the risk is going to be with, with these agents. Um, taking that out of the side, if, if that was not kind of in the background, I think that the JAKs would be launched, you know, much earlier in the disease course because I think their safety profile is becoming well-recognized and manageable. Uh, we vaccinate patients in the United States. In fact, we reported uh, several months ago our initial experience with shing risk in our first several hundred patients with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus at our center. And uh, we reported out that there was not a flare of the underlying rheumatic disease. Uh, vaccination reactions occurred in about 20% of patients, which is what's been reported in the package insert. 
What we don't know is whether the vaccine works or not, because that was not the purpose of our observation. We really do need some good vaccination studies to tell us whether the vaccine, whether the, the new vaccine prevents the development of shingles, because that's obviously the greatest risk factor, the greatest infectious risk factor that we have with the JAKs. So in an ideal world, would, when would you vaccinate rheumatoid patients? Uh, well, I vaccinate everybody now above the age of 50. Um, so I generally start to vaccinate them before they even start methotrexate. Partly you, because we... You'd wait to start methotrexate until no. they vaccinated? No. No, I'd vaccinate, give them their first shot, start them on methotrexate, um, and then three months later, of course, they'd get their second vaccine. We know that methotrexate may blunt vaccination response. So I would like to get it on board earlier. And in the United States, there's been a, well, prior to COVID, there was a huge push to vaccinate patients against shingles. Um, and we had, a, unfortunately, a nationwide shortage of the vaccine, which was, bit, which was a huge problem. Um, but I try to vaccinate everybody early on. So pneumococcal vaccine should be given before they start methotrexate. But I don't wait. You know, I, I want people to get their rheumatoid treated. Mike, uh, in your presidential address, um, uh, when you were president of the ACR, you were talking about the best of times, the worst of times. What were you referring to then? Well, part of the excitement of rheumatology back in 2001 were the new drugs. Um, you know, we had anti-TNF therapy for um, a couple of years they had clearly changed the course of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and I think we were incredibly excited about um, how we could manage this disease. The worst of times was the high cost of these drugs, which in retrospect, they were low compared to the way they are today. The difficulty with uh, uh, managing complicated rheumatic disease with limited arm material, particularly and other diseases besides rheumatoid arthritis. At that point, we had a huge, as we're now seeing again today, workforce problem. We had a major shortage of adult and pediatric rheumatologists. Uh, we're now starting to see the same workforce problem again. Um, and then the challenge, at least in the United States, of regulators telling us how we should manage our patients. Um, and that hasn't changed yet either. Um, the insurance companies still basically tell us, very much like in the UK, which drugs we can use and when we can use them. It's interesting, Michael. We've got almost total penetration of the biosimilars into the market so that we're not really allowed to start patients on originators unless there's a very, very good reason. And the cost is about a fifth of what we were paying for the originators. Um, the, the question I'm always asked in the States is how many more patients can you treat? And the answer is none, uh, because they're exactly the same criteria. So at the moment, it hasn't benefited the patients. It may have benefited the NHS a bit by saving money. But uh, I know it's a difficult question, but why do you think there's such poor penetration in the States? Well, partly because the only, only therapies because of patent issues that we can use are biosimilars to infliximab. Even though biosimilars to adalidomab and biosimilars to a tenercept have been approved because of patent law, 
they're not allowed to be used. Um, so we have biosimilar infliximat and none of the manufacturers of the biosimilar infliximat let really significantly lower the price of their drug. So, you know, it was more hassle to write for the biosimilar than for the originator. So there's been really almost no cost reduction with the biosimilar infliximat and their penetration reflects that. I mean, you know, at least at our hospital center, primarily we're using the originator. I think in 2023 or 2024, when the patent laws go away for adalidomat, hopefully we'll see some price modific modif modification actually, because in the US, the cost of these drugs are now in excess of $70,000 per year retail. That's not the cost that actually occurs, but that's a huge jump. Remember, Paul, when we started, when uh, a tenor set, the first anti-TNF approved in the United States, was $12,000 and now we're north of 70. So um, we, we need some price modification. It's certainly almost a log factor less here. Uh, well, it is a log factor less actually, the, the price. So there, is, there are huge differences. Mike, I'm gonna finish by just asking you, um, what do you say to a patient newly presenting with rheumatoid now? when they see you for the first time and that they ask about their future, what, what, what sort of comments do you give them? Yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about what we can do for our patients now with RA, Paul. Um, just like you, my goal is to start someone basically as soon as they walk in the door. You, know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to tell whether someone's got active rheumatoid arthritis. Um, you know, we as rheumatologists train on our expertise in history and physical exams, and you know, whether someone's got synovitis early on, and once you exclude the other causes of inflammatory arthritis, we, we, I start them immediately on a disease-modifying therapy. I tell my patients that with, and I don't even think it's aggressive therapy, I think it's appropriate therapy now. Rapid introduction of methotrexate, wait several months, and if they're not in achieving the target goals, adding another drug. Rapid dose escalation of metho, and then two to three months down the road, if they're not significantly better at doses of 20 to 25 milligrams per week, I'm adding another drug. It's generally a, a biologic right now, but over time it could very well be if the BTE issue gets resolved, a jacanim or another oral molecule. Um, and I tell them that there's an excellent chance that they'll be able to do everything they want to do, including marathon runners. I mean, I have a number of athletes that I manage, and my goal is obviously allow them to do all the physical activities that they want to do. And when they ask me, do I think they're going to be able to come off drug therapy? I tell them the goal is to put them into remission and stop the disease. And I don't know whether we're going to be able to stop drug therapy over time, but in many patients, they'll be able to lower their dose to maintain and maintain clinical response. So I think of all the diseases we manage as rheumatologists, I'm most gratified when a patient with RA walks in the door because I know that the vast majority of those patients we can put into low disease activity or remission if we use our drugs appropriately and if patients can tolerate the medicine. Mike, well, that's, we have come an awfully long way in 40 years because that's probably the last thing you would have said to a patient 40 years ago. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and reminiscing of the last 40 years of rheumatology. I hope uh, the audience has enjoyed it. Um, if you have, uh, please subscribe to CSF on your favorite po podcast app. 
and visit the CSF site to download the latest paper slide summaries. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Michael. Thank you, Paul. Great to talk with you. Thank <laughs> you.